0: Hey, everyone. So last Friday, I got to do something really cool and sit down with Greg Metz on Facebook Live from Old Elk and do a live broadcast for people while they're all staying at home. We did a happy hour on Friday. It was at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern. And it was just a way for everybody to get together on Friday afternoon while we're all staying indoors during this whole COVID-19 pandemic. Greg, as you know, is an amazing distiller. He used to be master distiller at MGP. He worked at Seagram's when the ownership took over to Pernod Ricard, into LDI and MGP, and now he's at Old Elk. So we got to talk to him a little bit about his history, and it really turned into this whole master class about bourbon and whiskey. I mean, the information that he gave and his candidness was just absolutely incredible. So thank you to Greg and Old Elk. I loved hearing his history and I loved hearing what Old Elk has coming. The interview was just way too good that I couldn't just let it be a Facebook live. So I've cut down Greg's portion and I'm going to present it to all of you. Before that, I want to let you know this show is sponsored by cascartel.com A lot of us are staying indoors lately, Cast Cartel is changing the industry standard as to how you receive your alcohol. It's a convenience thing. You can get your alcohol shipped directly to your door, which I know a lot of people need right now while we're all staying inside. So go to cascartel.com, check them out. Also, all of our glassware, as always, is provided by DistilleryProducts.com, your main source for wholesale pricing for laser etched glassware. They have all the glasses you need: Glen's, Wee Glen's, Dram glasses, Rocks glasses, whatever it is. Go see Janie, Vicky, Car. The whole crew over at distilleryproducts.com. If you want me to get you in touch with them, feel free to send me an email, a direct message. I'm happy to send you over to the good folks at (laughs) distilleryproducts.com. Now, Greg, you have an interesting story. We got to talk to you. We had you on the show for 20 minutes before you went to the airport. And I, I think I named the show 20 Good Minutes with Greg Metz. And there's so much information that you have and, and so much from your career from starting off at Seagram's, MGP, and then going on to Old Elk. Tell everybody a little bit about your story.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, probably one of the biggest questions people ask me is, uh, you know, how did you get to become a master distiller? And uh, really, the truth of the matter is that it was really pure dumb luck. uh, 42 years ago in 1978, I was finishing up my chemical engineering degree at the University of Cincinnati here in Ohio. And way back then, uh, folks actually came to campus to recruit for open positions that they had at their, their companies. And uh, as it was, Joseph V. E. Seagramson Sons was uh, on campus recruiting for open positions that they had at the distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. So I uh, <clears throat> went through that interviewing process and was lucky enough to have been offered a job. But Beyond that, I really had no idea uh, what I was getting into. And the thing I knew is that I was 23 years old and I was going to work for a company that made whiskey. And I thought, well, that's got to be pretty damn cool. And the uh, <laughs> fact of the matter is, 42 years later, it's still pretty damn cool. And, uh, you know, what What I didn't know at the time was that I was actually going to get the best training in the world from Joseph E. Seagram's and Sons relative to becoming a master distiller their training program if they were still in business I would probably still be going through their training program it, <laughs> it was it was all on the job training and uh, for me it lasted 24 years it lasted from 1978 to, to 2002 when they when they left the business altogether but they had uh, probably one of the most advanced Uh, research and development parts uh, of the business, uh, bigger and better than anybody. They had their own staff of PhD scientists that literally investigated every aspect of distilling whiskey, all the way from water treatment, through grain, through cooking, mashing, fermentation, distillation, and maturation. And really what they did is they consolidated all of the knowledge that they learned through probably 50 years of researching all those aspects and condensed it into two company books that we Allude to is the blue bibles. It's all the uh, all the methods that make world class whiskey. So they condensed over fifty years of knowledge into two two textbooks, two company textbooks, and it was all the methods that tell you how to make world class whiskeys
0: Now I have a very serious question (laughs) for you right now, and we are going to go to to questions from other people. Want to set things up a little bit more? But how much do I have to bribe you to get those blue bibles?
1: Well, I I don't. uh, Unfortunately, years ago I. Actually tried to have a company copy them and hardbound them for me. They weren't able to do that, but I I, uh, can get you an electronic copy. I mean, it's not oh, I would love
0: as a dork. I would sit there and read it. I really would. All the
1: knowledge, yeah, all the knowledge is there, and I, you know, I can I can do that for you readily.
0: Well, I would appreciate that. Now, people do have a lot of questions. I want to get back to greg is the man seriously one of the only people that is a true master distiller not a glorified salesman thank you chris for your. you rock
1: chris
0: (laughs) there's other people big chief there's a guy here uh his name is big chief and he does another podcast called the bourbon road that's very good and people should check out he wants your shirt looking at some of the other questions that people have the old elk cream and the old elk You might not know this, Greg. Is this distributed nationally along with Old Elf? Is the cream in the same states as the bourbon?
1: Our gin, Nuku bourbon cream, and uh, flagship bourbon are available in all 50 states. We have distribution uh, in all 50 states. We have a national alliance with Southern Glacier, uh, and they account for about 44 of the states. And then the uh, six states that they don't uh, cover are uh, other independent distributors that we've teamed up with. So as of uh, mid-December... We, uh, over a two-year period, have gained distribution in all 50 of the U.S. states, so we're ready to go. We put a lot of energy the last two years into getting that distribution set up, and I really think that uh, this year is going to be our breakout year. We're gonna, we've got the uh, infrastructure in place, and we're ready to, ready to roll with it now.
0: Blake Prow wants to know if you are bringing the Sour Mash National, and then we'll get back to kind of the story.
1: Yeah, we will be. It's uh, currently about five and a half years old. It's not quite ready from a maturity standpoint, but I've been looking at it. I looked at it at four years old, looked at it at five. We'll look at it at six, but it's getting close, but it's not quite ready. But at some point, it will be part of our product roadmap. And We're just waiting for that maturity to to hit the sweet spot.
0: Greg, how do you like to drink your bourbon? There's never a a wrong way to do it. What's the right way for you?
1: Actually, I like mine over ice a little bit. You can probably see I've got a a round ball ice cube in there, and I I do like mine chilled a little bit. Again, there's a lot of folks that think there's, you know, the only way is neat, and, I you know, I tell people all the time, it's the way you like it. It's the, the way to drink
0: it, so... I'm a firm believer of that, too. There's no wrong way. If you want to put Coke in it, great. If you want to put an orange peel in it, great. As long as you're drinking it, I don't care. Absolutely. Now, let's talk a little bit. So you were at Seagram's and MGP. You learned a heck of a lot there. And Old Elk came to you a few years ago. And basically said, because when they first came to you, you were still at MGP. Do you want to talk a little bit about how, you know, there's some people that are coming over from the Dad's Drink and Bourbon group that may not know the whole story of how Old Elk came to be and how you actually created the mash bill.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll even go farther back than that just to give a, put a perspective on things. One of the things over my 38-year career there at Lawrenceburg is that we actually had four ownership changes. From 1978 to, to 2002, I was uh, under the Joseph E. Seagrams and Sons umbrella. You know, they gave me the best training in the world uh, relative to becoming a master distiller. Well, in 2002, Seagram's elected to get out of the distilling business 100%. And at that time, they sold all of their brands, the Diageo and uh, Pernod Ricard. So th- the Lawrenceburg facility, really in 2002, started becoming a contract distiller. So we were operated by Pernod Ricard. And we continued to produce all the products, all the brands that were acquired by Diageo. In about 2008 or 9, Pernod Ricard, I think, had acquired Constellation, which was another big company in the business, and actually wound up with another distillery and another bottling house. So they had wound up owning two distilleries and two bottling houses and really only had capacity to... To operate one bottling house and one one distillery, and as it was, Lawrenceburg bottling house and the Lawrenceburg distillery wound up uh, going up for sale, and we wound up being acquired by a, a rich gentleman from Trinidad. That's when we became LDI. In the LDI era, which lasted about four and a half years, in 2008 or nine, we. That facility, we lost all brand affiliation. So you know, Pernod left, uh, Diageo had already acquired brand, Seagram's was gone. We still continued to produce all the products for Pernod and Diageo on a contract basis. But in 2008 or nine, we had become 100% contract distillers.
0: Because the big boom where everybody talks about MGP and Zeke and I have talked about this in great length. It's September to November of 2006. Is all that run of all the other people that had sourced from MGP LDI, who was actually owning it in 2006 in September to November when, when all that stuff was distilled?
1: Well, that would have still been uh, Pernod or Carr, but uh, that that was really the, the beginning of the uh, whiskey boom, if you will. And we had started, you know, even though we were producing for uh, Pernod and Diageo, that Distillery had a lot of extra plant capacity uh, left to utilize, and that's when we started searching out like third-party contract distillate sales. And then in uh, 2008 or nine, when when LDI took over, we still continued to produce for Diageo and Pernod. But that's when we really actively started pursuing contract sales. And during that four and a half year period, we we probably went from maybe a half a dozen other third party customers to probably hundreds. And then uh, in 2013 is when MGP uh, wound up taking ownership of the distillery and they continue to operate it as a hundred percent contract distillery.
0: I mean, it's kind of funny for me because everybody talks about, I want that MGP. I want that MGP. And I'm going to be very careful about what we do or say here, but I always say it's like, you guys want that mGP but it wasn't mgP when it was distilled all the stuff that everybody was going crazy over it wasn't even mGP then it wasn't even LDI then it was per over card
1: yeah that that's very true uh most of the fame that came upon the distillery and their products would have been through the uh, Pernod Car era and the LDI era relative to being uh, contract distillers. Now, uh, with that being said, I would say all of the mash bills that were produced were actually Seagram mash bills that we had produced many, many years for the Seagram products. And really Old Elk, when I met them seven years ago, going on seven years now, was really my first opportunity to create a custom. Nashville from the ground up unrestricted.
0: Before we even get into that, everybody in the comments keeps saying that you belong in the Bourbon Hall of Fame. They hope everybody appreciates what we're talking about here because you're just giving a whole bunch of historical truth that people don't always get a look at behind the curtain. So they're very appreciative. Thank you for that. We're going into more of when Luis and the folks at Old Elk came and reached out to you and they offered you an opportunity that you hadn't really had before at MGP, LDI, Seagram's before then, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, when we met, it was uh, a really short meeting. It was, <laughs> uh, Old Elk said, we want you to craft and produce a custom mash bill for us. And we want that mash bill to be smooth and easy. And that was it. That was that was the end of the meeting. So I had literally an open palette to create anything I wanted. The only thing I had to hit the mark on was that the product had to be smooth and easy. And uh, the way the mash bill came about was that through my experience, I knew that I had to get the malted barley content in the mash bill way up to hit smooth and easy. So the rest of it was really somewhat reverse math. I took uh, the corn content in the bourbon mash bill down to the minimum, which is 51%. Also, and throughout my whole career, I had always had some degree of rye in all the mash bills that I produced in Lawrenceburg uh, for the spice characteristic. And, uh, you know, again, through my experience, I knew that it took a minimum of 15% rye in the mash bill to get some of that spice to carry over into the distillate. So I factored in the 51% corn, that's the minimum. I factored in the 15% rye I needed for a little spice and that left me room for 34% malted barley. That's really how we arrived at the mash bill. And when we distilled it, you know, the white distillate uh, coming off the still was clean and crisp and uh, it was smooth and easy. Again, through what I was taught and what I learned throughout my whole career there in Lawrenceburg, I, I knew that when the product came out of the barrel, that it was going to be something special.
0: And there's a whole bunch of people that go to MGP and the contract distilling, it's more of like the mash bills or the mash bills. It's not very often that you get to make your own custom mash bill there, correct?
1: No, that's that's very true. And, uh, you know, I, I alluded to, I used a term earlier when I talked about Uh, that mash build, I used the term unrestricted. And, you know, most of my career uh, was really at the commercial level. We were a huge distillery and we made a lot of products for many, many folks. And being a commercial facility, we we were always under the gun to produce things cheaper every year. We still, you know, we still had to maintain world-class quality, which we did every year but every year there was pressure to you know to do things cheaper and squeeze as much out of uh, you know all the ingredients as you could the quickest way to do that is is to actually cut the malted barley content out of a mash bill and reduce it and just to give you a little real perspective you know corn is is the most abundant and by far the cheapest of all cereal grains and it also has the highest starch content well corn runs in the neighborhood of 70 to 72 percent starch and that's the only part of that cereal grain that is fermentable. Starch is the only thing that you can convert into alcohol. So, corn's the cheapest and most abundant. And you factor in rye, that is uh, not as abundant. It's more expensive. It runs probably 8 or $9 a bushel. And the starch content's only like 60%. So, you <laughs> get you're paying more and you're getting less and then you jump to the next step malted barley runs in the neighborhood of 24 dollars a bushel and the starch content of that is similar to rye so you're getting less starch and considerably more expense in the grain but you know old elk uh, gave me the latitude of producing a truly custom world-class mash bill unrestricted you know that just doesn't happen very often in this day
0: and age. And that's why a lot of distilleries actually do 5% barley, right? It's just enough to have it do an enzymatic reaction, kind of mellow everything out just enough. You never really see, I, I think it's funny, there's been this new resurgence. You kind of look at distilleries and obviously this is an old elk centered happy hour but we're all whiskey geeks here we're fun to talk about the industry you know you see uh, chad coming out with a, a high barley mash and then you also see pinhook now that they've moved over to castle and key they have a very high barley mash on on theirs as well so it's almost like you see this resurgence of hey this bourbon boom happened we cut down for a little while people want to try new things Let's try throwing some more barley in and see if we can create something that tastes amazing.
1: For years and years making bourbon, the the barley malt has that enzyme on it, like you alluded to, that that actually starts the process of smashing that huge starch molecule into dextrin. So you you go from this really dense, tangled up, log chain type of a molecule, and you add this malted barley, which has alpha amylase enzyme, that naturally occurs when that seed sprouts, that smashes that log chain into segments, which become dextrins. And then you add a secondary enzyme called glucoamylase that further reduces those short chains in the actual glucose molecules. And you wind up with uh, three fermentable sugars after you've gone through that enzyme conversion of starch into sugar. You go, glucose is the most fermentable, and you get maltose and then maltotriose.
0: I think I could get all dorky for a very long time with you, but we are here to allow people to ask you anything. So first one comes from Chris. How did Seagram's gin get its slight coloration? Does old elk use that same process in their aged gin?
1: Uh, the answer is that Seagram gin years ago uh, was actually aged in used bourbon barrels. And uh, that's that's how they arrived at the uh, slight yellow U in that product. We did at Old Elk used our Dry Town gin, and we actually did age that and uh, use bourbon barrels. So some of that, I would say it's, it's a limited edition, uh, so to speak, but uh, we do have that product available. It's quite nice. Uh, it is available to reserve. You know, I don't know that we've got enough age currently to go national with it, but it's certainly a nice product. And it's, you know, it's something that we would look forward to uh, producing on a larger scale.
0: Now, Travis asks, I think you said that you have a product finish in a cask. Can you talk about that process and how do you decide which cask to actually finish it in?
1: Yeah, we, uh, we actually did the support finish. Uh, And that's available at the reserve. And we looked at port or sherry barrels originally, and we elected to go with the port. I think we aged it three or four months in that barrel and, and that product. Uh, is available at the reserve and again it's it's quite nice it really enhances the color of the product and it it adds that uh, nuttiness and fruitiness uh, that you don't get from the uh, fresh charred new oak barrel so it's it's uh, it's really good it's nice and uh, it's right now only available at the reserve
0: because it's a high barley content would you ever finish in a beer cask is that something like a stout finish or is that just too much barley that's going on
1: Well, I would never rule anything out. I I will say that I'm primarily a traditionalist, so I would say currently all of our brown goods are pretty much aged in uh, new charred white oak barrels. We use a traditional number four char on the sides and a number two char on the heads. Kate Douglas is uh, our head distiller and she, she's got probably more experience than I do relative to, you know, new type products like that. Uh, we have done a collaboration with some of the local breweries where we've, where they've used our barrels, use, you know, used barrels for aging uh, stout beers in, which has been quite nice. But I would never rule anything out, but I will say that I'm more of a traditionalist than I am a adventurous
0: which this kind of goes right into jeff's question any plans to experiment in other types of barrels and different types of barrels
1: Currently, we don't have anything on a large-scale basis planned. We do have other products aging that are using different types of barrels. They're not quite ready for market, and the scale of it is probably such that those products would only be available at the reserve when they are uh, judge worthy of uh, putting out there. Again, I, you know, never say never, and you know, our eyes are always open to trying new things. Obviously all of our mash bills are unique and custom so you know it's it's kind of in our dna to, to be different what we really want to make sure we do all the time is present world class quality products you know, if we're not able to do that, then you'll actually never see them in an old elk
0: bottle. So, have you ever considered making an MGP bourbon clone? Chris is asking, given the answer that you just had there, I'm not sure if you would be willing to do this, but would you do something that's more traditional, you know, Seagram's whiskey?
1: I would say no. At this point, I would say no. I guess maybe from the standpoint of been there, done that, and that's really not old Elk's DNA. Old Elk's DNA is to be different than everybody else. All of our mash bills, and really we've only talked about our flagship bourbon so far on the show, but we've got a wheat whiskey, a wheated bourbon that's coming soon. We've got a sour mash, old elf mash bill that's coming soon. And all those products are different than everybody else, and they're unique, and they're they're world-class quality products. To answer the question, I would say uh, highly unlikely we would ever copy anybody else and the, the other thing that we do that is entirely different than the rest of the industry is we actually have a slow cut proofing process where we take two or two and a half weeks to reduce our barrel proof products to bottling proof and the reason we do that is because when, when you add water to a high proof distillate, the cut at the bottling proof, it's actually an exothermic reaction that puts a temperature rise into your product. And that temperature rise, even though it's subtle, can be enough to drive off the really delicate, high volatile congeners that you work so hard to produce through your your mash bill, your mashing, your fermentation, distillation, and maturation. And by doing it over a two or two and a half week period, we put incrementally small amounts of temperature rise into our product at any given time over that two and a half week period, which helps us preserve some of those really delicate congeners. The amount of water that goes in is the same that everybody uses commercially or in a one day or a two day process, but by stretching it out we are able to limit the amount of temperature rise in the product on any given day, which helps preserve and add to the balance and integrity of our distillates.
0: Now, before we get to Trisha's question, I do want to ask you, somebody had asked about sugar maple. I think it it kind of goes back to experimentation. I know you're a traditionalist, but there are some things that are coming out now, like Bellmead had their honey barrel. You had Taconic with a maple syrup finished. Tons of distilleries that are aging in French oak or Mizunara oak things like that. Have you thought about any of those that aren't necessarily crazy out of the box, but not something everybody is doing?
1: You know, it would never rule anything out. Uh, I would say, pardon me, currently we don't really have anything in process right now. Actually, I think the uh, Old Elk flagship bourbon actually has some maple notes to it, through the mash bill and doesn't require enhancement from that type of process that you're talking about so again and ne- never close the door but I-, I would say right now we don't really have anything in process and and we really haven't put anything on the table going forward. But
0: I asked that question just to make sure that we check the box, right? But let, let's be honest. I also think when it comes to a brand that's a new brand, I mean, they, they reached out to you seven years ago, but they didn't rush forward with distillate that wasn't ready. You, know, you guys were putting stuff out there after four years. So there was really three years of operation For old elk to come on the scene for a new brand introducing a whole bunch of SKUs right in the beginning is not necessarily the best move you want to establish a market share be in all 50 states have your bourbon your weeded bourbon your rye your sour mash you take those barrels and you put it to a finished product that's taking away from getting your product into other states other stores
1: Again, we, we've uh, been blessed with uh, ownership through Kurt and Nancy Richardson, who have allowed us to wait for the products to be ready. And uh, as you said, the flagship bourbon, we waited until it was nearly four years old before it hit the market. Actually, all of the flagship bourbon has been and going forward will be a minimum of four years old. Uh, the rye whiskey that, uh, that we have that Going to be coming soon is going to be five years old. The weeded whiskey that's coming soon is going to be six years old. And the sour mash that we alluded to earlier is five and a half, and it's likely to be six years old or better before we bring it to market. So we have been given wonderful latitude through our ownership to be able to wait for our products to be ready to come to market and to be super premium whiskeys.
0: Now, Tricia asks, let's get off this topic a little bit because I feel like we're beating the dead horse a little bit. What are some of your favorite bourbons or ryes in your own personal collection?
1: The rye whiskey is going to be along the the lines of the 95% rye mash bill that's out there. And Lawrence Burton made that mash bill famous. The reason we made that famous is because it's an extremely extremely difficult mash bill to produce and and have the quality come out in the world-class category it's uh rye is in the high rye mash bill type mash bills like 95 percent is very susceptible to creating aldehydes which you know you in your or profile you want some aldehydes and esters you don't want a lot of them and the high rye mash bills are very susceptible to overproducing aldehydes And esters to the point where it actually ruins the product. And, you know, through my uh, training under Seagram's, I mean, we learned how to produce that 95% rye mash bill and do it correctly day in, day out, you know, at at the risk of bragging. I would say there's probably only two people in the world that know how to do it, and that would be myself and Larry Ebersold, who is still uh, working in the industry as as a master distiller to train me. He also got his training under the Secret umbrella. Uh, Any of the 95% rye mash bills would be one of my favorite. Bullet, obviously, is is one of the big ones.
0: Uh, I do have to say that you guys kind of remind me, you and Larry, the Bill Parcells, and the Bill Belichick of the bourbon industry, there's all these other coaches that have worked with you and then gone off to do their own distilleries. If you look at the coaching tree, right, you have Parcells, you have Belichick, like Sabin, all these other people that are tied to to Parcells or Belichick. Do you ever sit back and look at that and go, that's kind of crazy, the tree that comes from you two?
1: You know, for me, um, you know, by nature, I'm really a humble person. And, you know, every day that I left the distillery, I knew that I produced world-class quality products. And for me, that was enough. And, you know, all the, you know, all the recent exposure and, you know, fame, if you will, is, it's been really fun. It's, you know, I, it's fun. I like it. It's, I don't want to knock it, but it's not something I need. Just take myself, take great pride and accomplishments. And every day that I walked out of the distillery, I, I knew that, you know, I produce a world-class quality product for somebody out there, and that was always enough for me, and it still is. Uh, you know, I love doing shows like this. It be, you know, being out there in front of it all. It's it's wonderful. We've got great fans out there, and it's uh, it is. It's wonderful, but it's not something that that I need to 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 thrive on every day.
0: So you're saying you're more the Bill Belichick, and Larry's more the Bill Parcells then.
1: Well, no, I, don't, I can't. I don't, I don't want to speak. For, I don't want to speak for Larry either. I think you know, Larry is is also a humble person. I believe, and I think we benefited from the best training in the world, and that's you know, that's really. Yeah, again, I, I that's, get it. I'm, yeah. I'm just
0: giving you some hell.
1: No, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think we just benefited from the best training in the world, and and you know, we capitalized on that and did very good things with it.
0: Now, everybody, we only have a couple more minutes with Greg. Does anybody have any last-minute questions, Bueller? What's your favorite beer?
1: (laughs) You tell me, Chris.
0: (laughs) He was already saying earlier that we needed a Coors Light for the end of this. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's funny that you like a Colorado beer and you have a distillery in Colorado. You got to tap the Rockies both ways.
1: I probably have
0: a few bricks in that building. Before we leave, I have one question because a lot of people talk about MGP and the aging process there. Now, when I got to be with you in person, I learned a lot about how you could have a, a bourbon or a whiskey go in at 120, 125 proof, and it could actually lose proof being at MGP in the old Seagram's building opposed to being in a wooden rickhouse. Can you talk a little bit about that before we go?
1: Yeah, I can. I I wish I could explain it better. I think it's just a matter of the way the warehouses were built in Lawrenceburg, as well as the climate. But Historically, the Kentucky warehouses, uh, their products almost always gain proof uh, through the aging process. Now, again, the Kentucky warehouses are somewhat like tobacco barns. It's basically racks, barrels, and they're just sheeted in sheet metal, you know, to protect the barrels from the elements. The warehouses in Lawrenceburg were were like bomb shelters. They're two foot thick masonry walls around the perimeter. They had one foot thick concrete floors between each level. So they acted more like a battery, a giant battery. The barrels didn't see major swings day to day or season to season, where the Kentucky warehouses you know, see much bigger daily temperature swings as well as seasonal swings. And that's not to say that one's better than the other. I'm not saying that at all. It's just the climate and type of warehouses just has a different effect on how that product ages in Lawrenceburg. I wish I could explain it more scientifically. Uh, (laughs) I I don't know that I can. It's just a matter of which molecule gets split off. Because when you enter alcohol into a barrel, you're putting it in at 125 proof or less. So you've got alcohol and water. A water molecule is attached to the alcohol when you put it in the barrel. It's just a matter of how the climate and the way the warehouse is built, what molecule gets split off the maturation process and in Lawrenceburg why the the alcohol had more of a tendency to leave the barrel which lowered the proof and in Kentucky it seems like the water molecule has more propensity of going through the barrel in the evaporation process where they gain proof. One's not better than the other but it's absolutely uh, a fact that Kentucky gains proof and Lawrenceburg
0: loses. I mean I've had some of the you know Seagram's LDI MGP It's 13, 14 years, but it's aged up in Michigan, like Traverse City up there that's doing it. It's actually okay when it's that old. I find a lot of the stuff that gets aged down in Kentucky and Tennessee once it gets over 12 years old, It could be a little oaky, you know, Mm -hmm. it almost kind of has that period where it turns. And I know we don't have enough time here to get into that. But I think for people that are listening, it's interesting to hear about the differences in buildings. Now, all that being said, you had a tremendous career. Bryce wants to know if there's going to be a biography. I want to know what else you have planned for Old Elk.
1: Well, if I tell you, I have to kill you. (laughs) But I can I can assure you that uh, I've got some pretty special stuff planned for the future, and uh, we're not done yet. We're going to make a name for ourselves, and we're going to be known for super premium whiskeys.
0: Well, I really enjoy talking to you every single time I get to. Once this is over, will you come back? I have all this whiskey behind me. Will you come over and help me drink some of it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, yeah. So I hope you come over come back to nashville greg thank you so so much it's always a pleasure talking to you
1: and i'm hoping we get to do this again being everybody's sort of in quarantine i think it's terrific that we're able to do it and uh, i look forward to the next one
0: i want to thank greg again and the great folks over at old elk for putting this whole thing together letting me be a part of it i can't wait to do it again greg thank you thank you Luis. thank you it was awesome i hope we do it again soon find old elk on all of the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads, Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Find us wherever you download your podcasts. Please leave us an open and honest review, just like we leave open and honest reviews about the whiskey we drink. You can also find us in Nashville, Tennessee, and Zeke if he can ever get away from work. Cheers.